0: Well, with everything going on in our world today, particularly uh, with the uncertainty of outcomes related to this virus and all of the the widely varied projections that we have about how it's going to affect our population and our economy and our way of life moving forward, and of course it's everything from one extreme to the other and about everything in between, Uh, I think it's easy for us to allow ourselves in all of that to become fragmented, uh, not only as as a people, as the church, but fragmented even within ourselves personally, to become so agitated uh, in our spirits and overcome by fear and uncertainty that we lose sight of what we actually have in Christ, because he's not only Jesus, our friend, as we just prayed, he's not only Jesus, our Savior, Jesus, our Healer, Jesus, our Provider, Jesus, our Comforter, Jesus, our Hope. Of course, we know He's all of those things and more. But He is also Jesus, our King. He is our leader, our counsel. He is our guide. He's our shepherd. Jesus is our ruler. He's constant through all of this uncertainty. And so I hope that that whatever... Uh, time, listen, I hope whatever time you're spending looking to the news or to the government updates or to the latest statistics for answers, I hope that you're spending more time than that looking to Jesus for answers because he is our king. He's the one we're supposed to be looking to for what to do next each day, which, to be honest, uh, is not always what we expect. Yet I think sometimes as Christians, Because we have a relationship with Jesus and we have, of course, his word. And therefore, we know things about Jesus. I think sometimes we assume that we know what to expect from him in any given situation without actually asking him first. And the problem with approaching life that way, especially when times are hard, is that just as life isn't always predictable, well, neither is he. Case in point, one, one of the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, the natural path for him to take at the time when he was leaving Antioch was to go through Asia and preach the gospel in that region as he was doing everywhere he went. And yet Luke tells us in Acts 6:6 that the Holy Spirit forbade Paul and his companions from speaking the word in Asia. Well, why, right? Did, uh, didn't the people in Asia need the gospel too? Of course they did. So why did the Holy Spirit tell Paul not to go there and preach the gospel? Well, the answer is, we have no idea, which is the whole point. Sometimes what our king wants us to do today is not what we would naturally predict or think we would naturally do because we serve a king who is not always predictable, which means your life, when you're truly following Jesus, your life will not always look like you think it will. And the greatest example that we have of that, of course, is Jesus himself who lived such an incredibly unpredictable and unexpected life that it seemed foolish to the world. Which means when you follow him, sometimes your life is going to look foolish to the world too. And if you need proof of that, all you have to do is turn to scripture where there are as many as 400 ancient prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. And for centuries before the Messiah actually came to the earth as a man, the Jews, who, uh, they were not only watching and waiting for him to come, but they were also diligently learning and teaching one another those same scriptures that described him and how he was going to come. Okay, So, so they knew more about him than anyone else on the earth at the time. And yet when he finally did show up, the vast majority of them missed it completely. They didn't recognize the very person that they had fashioned their entire lives and culture to reflect. And despite the profound and undeniable impact that Jesus has had on the earth since, it remains true that the majority of the uh, the Jewish community and humanity in general continues to overlook the person and ministry of Jesus as the Messiah. And so for the religious Jews, for instance, they're still waiting for the Messiah to come. 2,000 years after Jesus' arrival on the earth. Uh, the 12th century rabbi Maimonides, he's one of the most prolific and influential Torah sco- scholars in the, the Middle Ages. He wrote in the Mishnah Torah concerning the Messiah, anyone who does not believe in him or does not wait for his arrival has not merely denied the other prophets, but has also denied the Torah and Moses, a rabbi. And that was written nearly 1,200 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, we don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So we're still waiting for him to come. The, the, The same people who are supposed to know more about him than anyone, the same people whose lives and community and culture were fashioned around a messianic expectation for God's chosen, the same people failed to recognize him when he was standing right there in front of them. Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. John 5, 39 and 40. At a glance, it's hard to fathom how the balance of God's chosen people, the ones who claim to belong to him, could fail to recognize who Jesus actually was and what he was doing on the earth while he was right there among them. It's because they thought, of course, they already knew everything that they needed to know about him. And so when he he came and lived in ways that were completely unexpected and unpredictable, well, they ignored his voice in their lives. And, And listen, honestly, I wonder sometimes if Jesus were to walk into our churches today, would we recognize him? Because the truth is, he might not act like or look like you expect him to. That was certainly true the the first time that he came. And nowhere is that more evident than in the last week of his life on this earth, including Palm Sunday, which, of course, we're celebrating today, the week before Resurrection Sunday, where uh, just in that one Week of his life on earth, Jesus systematically shatters the expectations of everyone around him, for both the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, Listen, the, the Jews expected a king in the line and tradition of David to come in on a war horse. What they got instead was a man in peasant's clothing, accompanied by common people riding on a donkey of peace. They expected validation as God's chosen people. What they got instead was driven out of the temple by Jesus for their sin. They expected religious pretentiousness and arrogance. What they got instead was a man willing to give himself up for the very people who were mocking him and beating him and cursing him and ultimately killing him. You see, for the Jews, Jesus was one shattered expectation after another. And to the Gentiles, the cross was foolishness. In Acts 17... We find the Apostle Paul in Athens teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, but it was foolishness to them because the Gentiles believed in human reason above all else. As George Renault put it, reason tells you that babies aren't born to virgin girls. Reason tells you that God doesn't become flesh. Reason tells you that Almighty God will not allow puny men to nail him to a cross. Reason tells you that when a man dies, he cannot be resurrected back to life again. None of that makes any sense. For the Gentiles, the cross was foolishness. You see, Jesus was so unpredictable. He simply did not meet anyone's expectations. And in the process, most of the people who encountered him failed to recognize who he was because he was completely counter to their culture and the expectations of that culture. Even the religious culture... And the, and the truth is, I'm not sure much has changed in that regard. Right There are plenty of professing believers today who are more interested in uh, winning theological arguments based on God's word than they are winning people's hearts based on God's will, which is exactly what the Pharisees love to do. At the same time, there are professing Christians today who believe that uh, moral truth or justification, even biblical truth, is relative malleable that it's flexible according to the culture or society that it is being expressed in which is exactly what the pagan gentile philosophers believed and then along came jesus and he ruined it for everybody because he didn't meet anyone's expectations. And the truth is, every one of us today has expectations concerning Jesus. We all do, which is why it is so very important for us, especially when times are like they are, to honestly, it's important that we assess what our expectations of Jesus actually are. What are they based upon? Right? Are your expectations of Jesus Christ based on popular sentiment? About him or religious traditions or even your own preferences about what you want God to be like because if they are then when hard times visit us as they are now listen you can become so spiritually fragmented and frustrated with a God who isn't responding the way that you want him to or are those expectations of Jesus based on how he actually lived his life and what he actually taught along the way and what he's actually saying to us today. Because often when you peel back the layers of expectations that we all have about Jesus, you will find that so much of what we hold to be true about him is based on things that we've been told our entire lives about him by others. Some of that which may or may not be entirely true. Or or based on religious traditions that may or may not have their roots in Scripture. Or on popular culture that constantly, of course, wants to tell us how we should think about God. Or listen, even our own preferences about how we would like for God to respond to our own needs. But I'm telling you, Jesus isn't just some kind of sage who came to spread a philosophy that affirms our positive feelings about ourselves. And he's also not just a religious leader who came to give us a better religion to follow either. No, Jesus is a king who came to establish his kingdom in the most unpredictable, unexpected way possible, which is what Palm Sunday is all about, the revelation of Jesus, our king. And so today and next week, we're going to pause our sermon series in 1 Samuel and share these messages that we revisit each year as we recognize this profound day in the life of Christ. And in the process, uh, listen, let's allow some of our expectations about him to be challenged in light of what he actually did and what he actually taught about himself and what he's actually saying to us today, which may not only change how we view Jesus, But it may well change how we view ourselves as well and how we live our lives in these unpredictable, unexpected times that we're living in today. So we're going to be reading from the gospel according to John, chapter 12, beginning with verses 12 through 15, which is the moment Jesus makes his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem just before the Passover feast. So let's read it together. John 12, 12 through 15. we're gathering in Jerusalem for the Passover feast as they had done each year. Verse 12 describes it as a large crowd. Uh, scholars, many of them, including the first century Jewish historian and scholar Flavius Josephus, actually estimated the crowd to have been over 2,700,000 people. So, so just try and picture that in your mind for a moment, which I think is hard, honestly, for some of us to do, because when you think about what we see in the movies, right, in these cinematic renderings of this event, uh, we see Jesus comes riding in, surrounded by dozens of people lining a dirt road, and I think that's how we tend to imagine it in our minds, but in truth, it doesn't even come close to what this scene was actually like. Uh, The sheer immensity of the crowd gathered to hail the entrance of the one they were expecting to lead a revolt against their Roman oppressors. It must have been a staggering sight to behold. Over two million people, not just lining the streets, but covering the hillsides, waiting for Jesus to come in and cheering as he entered the city. And they're cutting palm branches from the trees and throwing them down on the road before him and waving them in the air because palm branches symbolize Jewish nationalism and victory. In their culture. In fact, uh, images of palm branches were even stamped on the temple coins dating all the way back from the time of the Maccabees during a seven-year revolt from about 167 BC to 160 BC when a Jew named Judas Maccabeus miraculously led Israel into victory over the Syrian occupation. And upon that great victory, the crowd celebrated by pulling palm branches off the trees and waving them in the air, signifying their military Triumph over their enemies. And so it helps us to understand the mindset and expectations of these two plus million Jews toward Jesus as he's riding into the city that day while they once again wave the palm branches in the air. It's also why, of course, it's called Palm Sunday. And in anticipation of Jesus leading a military revolt against the Roman occupation, they're also shouting a couple of verses from Psalm 118. It's one of the Psalms of ascents as they throw the palm branches down before him and again wave them in the air. We know from, uh, we know from Luke 19 that shortly after this, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Why? Because of his great love for these people, which was driving him, to do what would otherwise be unthinkable. He's about to give up his own life for them. And so the Jews are expecting Jesus to ride into the city before millions of people chanting his name, declaring him king over Israel on the best looking, perfectly fit and most intimidating war horse that could be found. The only animal befitting a true king. And yet Jesus rides in on a donkey, the exact opposite of what they expected. But why? Why in the world, given the opportunity before him to impress that many people, the people he clearly loves, the people he's so passionate about, he weeps over them. Why would Jesus choose to ride into the city on a donkey? Well, it's because Jesus wasn't coming to fulfill their expectations. He was coming to fulfill his destiny as a humble and compassionate savior. They expected their king to be proud even arrogant, but Jesus was a humble king. Everything that he did was done with a humble heart. In fact, his entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey was prophesied 500 years earlier in Zechariah 9.9, which specifically describes the coming of the humble king on the back of a donkey. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble, and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey, you see the uh, the heart of Christ, the same heart that is supposed to be in his people today, is always clothed in humility. there is no room for ego, there's no room for pride there's no room for. Self-centeredness or arrogance when the Apostle Paul says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ, second Corinthians ten five. When the apostle Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. First Peter three fifteen. when Jude, the brother of Jesus says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude 1, 3, they're all talking about winning hearts not just winning arguments. In fact, if you go back and read each one of those scriptures in their larger context, they all talk about showing humility, gentleness, respect, and mercy in the process. By the way, true humility is not simply acting a certain way around other people. You know that. According to Scripture, humility is actually the state of your own heart. The word translated as humility throughout the New Testament and the the ancient Greek literally means a deep sense of one's own littleness. That's not simply acting humble or saying the right things or even doing the right things. It's more than that. True humility is a deep sense within yourself of your own littleness. This is supposed to be one of the hallmarks of the church. Something that Christians are supposed to be famous for. Our humility, our own sense of littleness. Always putting others before ourselves. Always showing mercy, knowing that not one of us, listen to me, not one of us deserves the mercy that has been extended to us by God. Always letting go of our offenses. Always laying down our pride. Always admitting when we're wrong. Always asking for forgiveness when we've hurt someone else. And always forgiving others when they've hurt us. Always being soberly aware of our own littleness in light of the greatness of the one who lives inside of us. Right? If we have the spirit of Christ living inside of us, then humility should be part and parcel of our very identity as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. This sense of our own littleness should be at the very core of who we are, which happens to be incompatible with the message of our culture, even some of our religious culture. But listen, Jesus didn't fit in with the culture then either. They wanted him to be proud even arrogant, but he didn't give them what they wanted. Jesus never gave people what they wanted. He gave them what they needed. And likewise, Jesus didn't send us out into the world to give people what they want. He sent us into the world to give them what they need. This world needs truth, and they need that truth bathed in humility. Scottish evangelist Oswald Chambers wrote, Never water down the word of God, but preach it in its undiluted sternness. There must be unflinching faithfulness to the word of God, but when you come to personal dealings with others, remember who you are. You are not some special being created in heaven, but a sinner saved by grace. The world needs the truth, undiluted, and they need it bathed. In humility, because look, you can speak absolute truth to lost people. But if that message is spoken out of pride and arrogance, the only thing that they will see in that message from you is you. Because pride points people back to yourself. Humility points people to Christ. Let's be honest. When you see Christians arguing uh, on social media or in person for that matter, and they're being particularly arrogant or prideful. And, and uh, listen, I know. I know how passionate people can be about things like a pandemic that is spreading around the world. and What caused it and how it got here and what the effects are going to be and what's behind it. I understand all of those dynamics and the passion that comes with it. It's a big deal and it stirs up many different powerful emotions in many different people. I get it. But look. No matter how true or even powerful our arguments may be about the gospel or God or how he will respond to this crisis or anything else for that matter. If there is an overwhelming air of arrogance and pride in our delivery, then the person you are talking to, I guarantee you, the person you're talking to is not thinking about Jesus when you're speaking. They're thinking about you because pride always points people back to ourselves. Humility is what points people to Jesus. And by the way, the humility that is described in the Bible, that deep sense of littleness is not a devaluing of yourself. It's not beating yourself down. It's not self-deprecation. No, it's an ever-present awareness of who Christ is in you and what he did for you, which should result in a profound sense of worth and value, and at the same time, a profound understanding that without him, well, we are nothing. Pastor and theologian Timothy Keller says it this way The Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Let's keep reading, verses 16 through 19. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So interestingly, verse 16 says that not even Jesus's closest friends understood what he was doing or what was happening. And these were the men and women who knew him better than anyone else, the people uh, who'd been with him for years, right? Watching him live out the gospel every day, listening to him teach about who he was and what he'd come to do. And yet they still don't understand what was happening, even though their own scriptures clearly describe what he was doing and in the exact detail in which he was doing it 500 years before it ever happened. Excuse me. So there's no two ways about it. Jesus was a misunderstood king. He was still king, but he was deeply misunderstood because he defied everyone's expectations of himself, even those who knew him the best. Right? What, uh, what kind of king secures the victory over his enemy by allowing himself to be killed? Logically, that doesn't make any sense. But Jesus didn't come to satisfy the world. He came to satisfy the Father. And look, if your your greatest desire in this life is to satisfy Jesus Christ above all other desires, then there will absolutely be times in your life when other people, including your closest friends and family, will not always understand why you're doing what you're doing or the way you're doing it or why you're saying what you're saying or why you're helping who you're helping or why you're going where you're going or why you're giving what you're giving and on and on and on. Because following Jesus Christ often looks like the opposite of what we think it should look like. And so as we pursue his leading with true humility, other people will at times question your choices. They will. They will question your judgment they'll question your motivation, they will question your decisions, they'll question your actions, they'll question your wisdom, they'll question your leadership, they'll question the direction you've decided to take. Some of you probably know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experienced what I'm talking about firsthand. And for those who haven't, listen, you can write this down and go ahead and post it on your refrigerator for future reference. If you are truly following Jesus Christ, There will be times in your life when you will be deeply misunderstood by other people, even those who you're closest to. It is a fact that I've experienced in my own life and was clearly evident in Jesus's life. Just listen to what he says to those who came to him, telling him that they wanted to follow him. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Well, what does that mean? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What? That means die a horrible death. What are you talking about, Jesus? For for which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he's had enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter a king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who has come against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, you cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26 through 33. In other words, you say you, you want to follow me but you'd better count the cost before you actually make that decision because following me is going to cost you all that you have. Jesus, why are you saying that? Don't you want people to follow you? I'm supposed to hate my father and mother. By the way, that, that word is an ancient Semitic expression. to means to love less. Jesus is saying, you have to love me more than anything or anyone else in your own life, even your own family, including and especially yourself, if you think you're going to follow me. That's why you have to bear your own cross, allow your own will to die so that my will can be accomplished in your life. I mean, honestly, are these the kinds of things a king says when he's trying to recruit an army? Look, Jesus was misunderstood. There's no two ways about it and you will be too when you actually follow him because you're no longer trying to satisfy the world when you're following Jesus you're you're only trying to satisfy him and that will lead you to places and people and decisions and actions and a way of life, way of making decisions that people around you won't always understand sometimes those who are even closest to you or that you thought were closest to you. It's a fact. So listen, if pleasing other people above everything else is one of the chief motivations inside of you for for behaving the way you behave or choosing the things you choose or making the decisions you make, if that's one of the things that drives you to do what you do, keeping people happy, well, then I'm just telling you, you're going to struggle at times in your life with pleasing God. Because sometimes doing or saying what is pleasing to God means doing or saying what is anything but pleasing to other people, sometimes even those who are close to you. And and sometimes what feels right and what is right are two very different things. Sometimes truly loving people means doing and saying things that are not going to please them at all. Author Bob Goff said, loving people the way Jesus did means living a life of being constantly misunderstood. Let's keep reading, verses 20 through 26. "'Now among those who went up to worship at the feast "'were some Greeks. "'So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, "'and asked him, "'Sir, we wish to see Jesus.' "'And Philip went and told Andrew, "'Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, "'and Jesus answered them, "'The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. "'Truly, truly, I say to you, "'unless the grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, "'it remains alone.' But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus just continues to torpedo people's expectations of him as two men come looking for him, wanting to see him. And he doesn't even acknowledge their desire for a meeting. He doesn't give them what they want to hear. He gives them what they need to hear. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You just go ahead and tell them that. And as they're about to find out, Jesus didn't just speak this truth, He lived it as He gave all that He had, His very life. For the will of the Father, Jesus was a sacrificial king. And there's simply no getting around this aspect of truly following Christ either. Now, of course, uh, that doesn't mean that keeps us from trying because no one enjoys sacrifice, right? Forfeiting what you want for the sake of what God wants is never easy. And yet you simply cannot follow Jesus Christ without experiencing life altering sacrifice. Because following Christ means dying to ourselves. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He really didn't leave a lot of room here for debate, did he? Not a lot of room for alternate interpretations or lengthy discussions about maybe what he might have meant No, he simply said what he meant. If you're not willing to sacrifice your life for mine, then you cannot follow me. That was so unexpected and yet so clear that people either followed him or they ran the other direction. There really was no in between in the first century. There was no benefit to to sort of following Jesus at the time. Once he made it clear the personal cost involved in following him, you were either all in or you were all out. Okay, Jesus didn't try to coax people into following him. He never told people what he thought they wanted to hear in the hopes that they might decide to follow him because he was so likable. No, when when the Gentiles came to see Jesus, he didn't even bother to meet with these men. He just said to his disciples, go tell them what it's going to cost them to follow me, namely everything. Jesus never told people what he thought they wanted to hear or to try and convince them that they should follow them. And yet in the modern church, we've become experts in trying to package the message and craft our church culture in a way that is the least offensive and the most attractive in the hopes of coaxing people into our churches and into the kingdom of God by keeping everybody happy. But that's not what Jesus called us to do. He called us to sacrifice our lives. To utterly disown what we want. For the sake of what he wants. And listen, ultimately, that's what will truly attract people to our churches and to the kingdom of God anyway. When the world sees the church living and giving selflessly, sacrificing our lives of comfort and security and predictability and instead pursuing Christ with a radical abandonment, then when we tell people about Jesus based on that truth and the evidence that they see of it in our lives, they will either run toward him or run away from him. But I'm telling you, there won't be much in between. Author and pastor Erwin Lutzer once said, those who give much without sacrifice are reckoned as having given little. Let's finish the story for today. Verses 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The word troubled in verse 27 is the Greek word terasso. It means to be stirred up or unsettled. So just after explaining that his time to die had come, back in verse 23, Jesus asks a rhetorical question. He says, is my soul stirred up, unsettled? Well, of course it was. We know that it was because of his prayer later in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so he continues, what should I do? Should I ask the Father to spare me? Well, that's exactly what he does later in his prayer to the Father. Yet at the same time, he understands that he must be obedient to the Father's will, no matter the cost to him personally. So he answers his own question. He says, I know that it is for this very purpose to die that I'm here, so I must be obedient to my calling, which he expresses when he says, Father, glorify your name, because Jesus knew that in his death, the Father would be glorified. In other words, no matter how difficult this is going to get, no matter how hard it's going to be, I am going to be obedient to my Father's will. Jesus was an obedient king, which was totally unexpected, right? Who does a king submit to? Who does a king answer to? Who does the king obey? And yet Jesus denies his own will in obedience to the Father's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke twenty-two forty-two. 42. Jesus denied his own will in order to satisfy the Father's will, which is the very picture of obedience, and of course, if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time at all, you already know how difficult that can be. It's so hard sometimes to deny what we want in deference to what He wants. But Jesus could not be clearer on the matter. He said, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Luke 6:46. In other words, don't, don't go around calling me your Lord if you don't do what I tell you. If you refuse to obey my commands, clearly I'm not your Lord. Okay, confession without obedience is worthless. It means nothing. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who confesses me as Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven, Matthew seven twenty one. He also said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Luke 8, 21 and Luke eleven twenty eight. 28, he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Confession without obedience is worthless. And it's not that, listen, it's not that following the rules is what saves us. Not at all. The people of God tried that in the Old Testament and proved unequivocally that we will never be able to follow enough religious rules to be saved. We are saved by his grace through our faith alone, period. Full stop. Obedience is simply one of the evidences, one of the proofs that we are actually following Jesus Christ, that he is actually our Lord. Not perfection, but a genuine desire and ongoing effort to obey the word of God and the calling of God in our lives. That's how when we say, Lord, Lord, it means something, because there's evidence of it in our lives, which is what Jesus, our King, demonstrated for us by his own actions, which was not only unexpected, by the way, Uh, It was downright shocking that this king, this Messiah, this savior who, who would come to the earth as a man in such humility, knowing he would be so misunderstood, and yet he sacrifices everything in obedience to the father's will, which, by the way, troubled him deeply. Right after praying, Father, not my will, but yours be done, Luke says in being in agony, Jesus was in agony over what the father was asking him to do. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground just before he did the unthinkable, sacrificing his life for a world who wasn't even asking for it. Jesus defied everyone's expectations of him as he rode into Jerusalem that day. I'm telling you, he's been defying people's expectations ever since. And look, the world today doesn't need a less offensive or a more culturally acceptable version of Jesus. They just need Jesus. The same Jesus who offered people what they needed instead of what they wanted. The same Jesus who lived to satisfy the father instead of those around him. The same Jesus who gave up his own life to save others. The same Jesus who denied his own will in obedience to his calling. He lived a life that no one expected. And yet he is calling you and me to live that very same kind of life today. No matter how bad our circumstances may be or may become. Because his word never changes no matter what we are afflicted by. And he never changes no matter how much we do. Which means we don't live our lives according to what the news says or politicians say, or our fears tell us, or even what our own personal preferences may be. No, we live according to the calling and command of our King, Jesus Christ. And look, sometimes people won't recognize you when you live that way, which is okay, because they didn't recognize Jesus either. Because his life, listen, Jesus's life had absolutely nothing to do with satisfying other people's expectations from him, and you know what? Neither does yours. Let's pray.